Becoming your strongest financial self? Good plan. Northwestern Mutual's Guide to Good Financial Planning can help you balance spending and saving, set goals, and start creating the life you want to be living. Get it today at northwesternmutual.com slash goodplan. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. The Bowery Boys episode 181, Park Slope and the History of Brownstone, Brooklyn. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys are brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobook entertainment. For a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial, go to audibletrial.com slash boweryboys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today's show is about Park Slope, an old residential neighborhood that is astride Prospect Park in Brooklyn, a neighborhood that has a truly unique history. It is, according to its historic designation, a, quote, vivid illustration of the characterization of Brooklyn as a city of homes and churches. It's a line of mansions and brownstones, with some retail, of course, that once carried the nickname of Brooklyn's Gold Coast. Today, we'll look at the history of Park Slope and at its most iconic form of housing, the brownstone, to see its glory days at the turn of the century to a rather rough spot in the early and mid-20th century to being one of the most sought-after neighborhoods in the city today. And Tom, this is kind of, I think, going to be one of my favorite parts of the show when we talk about one of the first instances of Brooklyn gentrification, but of a different stripe, perhaps, than some of the kinds that are happening in Brooklyn today. Well, that'll be your favorite part of the show, Mm -hmm. but my favorite part of the show is that we're bringing in other voices in this episode. Oh, yeah, we're doing something brand new and different. We hope that you all enjoy this. In today's show, we'll be talking to a number of experts in the subject, both historians, museum curators, and residents of Park Slope, as they help us tell the story of this neighborhood. That's right. We went out live in the field with an actual field uh, microphone recorder and scoured through the history of Park Slope block by block. So join us and make yourself at home as we visit the history of Park Slope and the story of Brownstone, Brooklyn. All right, Greg. Well, for today's show, why don't you situate us in the neighborhood of Park Slope? Do you want to give us the boundaries of this neighborhood? Well, so, yeah. It's you, tricky, it, right? Yeah, because this is a hard one, actually. Situating Park Slope is rather difficult, but since I am the Brooklyn Bowery Boy, I will do my level best 
to give you the basic boundaries of what Park Slope is. There's actually been many different ways to delineate the boundaries of Park Slope over the years. The traditional borders have expanded. The neighborhood of Park Slope is situated on the west side of Prospect Park, which is the biggest park in Brooklyn. Okay, so this part is not up for debate. Park Slope is is to the west of Prospect Park. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, absolutely. For those not familiar with with the neighborhood, like they've never been there, luckily, at least, it has a very orderly street grid plan. And this orderly grid plan has numbered avenues that are parallel to the park. There are a row of avenues that run north to south, and luckily those are numbered from 4th Avenue, 5th Avenue, 6th Avenue, 7th Avenue, 8th Avenue, and the avenue that runs along the park is, of course, Prospect Park West. So you started at 4th Avenue. There is a 3rd Avenue, but I take it you think that 4th Avenue is the western border of Park Slope. Well, today it is generally considered because now it is next to another neighborhood with some traction, uh, which is Gowanus. And so they're a little bit more delineated. But, you know, even a few decades ago, no one would have considered that to be the, the western border of Park Slope. It would have been much further east. So there is a general consensus on the northern border of the neighborhood. Right. The northern border is Grand Army Plaza and Flatbush Avenue. Okay. But on the southern side, some people will say that it ends at 14th, 15th Street. Others will say it goes all the way down to the northern border of Greenwood Cemetery. Okay. So that seems a bit in flux. And then in today's show, we're going to also be talking about the north slope. So that generally ends around 3rd Street? Yeah, something something like that. Um, the original sort of enclave that we'll be getting to was v- a very f- few number of blocks that ran very close to the park, basically from Grand Army Plaza to around 3rd Street, right? And then 7th and 8th Avenues. But 250 years ago, however, let's wipe all of this like vast development of retail, of beautiful apartments and brownstones and townhouses and all the churches and all around here, we'll just erase them from our mind because 250 years ago, of course, this was farmland, basically cultivated by this t- in this time by families with Dutch origin. So you're setting us here right before the Revolutionary War, mm-hmm. something like the 1760s, early 1770s. Right. Now, what we know about Brooklyn today is, of course, the county, Kings County. Back then, however, it was just six little villages of Dutch origin. Utrecht, Gravesend, Flatbush, Flatlands, Bushwick, and then Brooklyn, Broekelen, on the waterfront. And that's about three to four miles from where we're speaking about today. But today's Park Slope, this area was part of that original village of Brooklyn. You know, it's funny, Tom, because in the old days, for actually a lot of the period of time that we're going to talk about here, it was just referred to as South Brooklyn. Like all of these names of little neighborhoods, uh, these cute, quaint little names, were actually fairly modern constructs. You may be confused because there's a lot of neighborhoods that are, of course, further south in Brooklyn today, like Coney Island and and Bay Ridge and everything. But that is an old name that came from this original village, so which then became a town and then became, of course, a city. But it didn't take up the whole area that is today's borough. So, in fact, Park Slope and the neighborhoods that we call Carroll Gardens and those types of neighborhoods were all just simply referred to as South Brooklyn. Now, we're going to focus our attention here on one little house 
in this particular area. It was owned by the Vecht family, who came here straight from the Netherlands in 1660 and lived here well into the years of the Revolutionary War. Now, that house was located approximately around 5th Avenue and 3rd Street, and we know that because a reconstructed version of that house, using some of the original materials, still exists today. It's called the Old Stone House. So just a couple days ago, Tom and I went down to the Old Stone House and talked to the curator, Kim Mayer, about some of the history of the early days here. I'm Kim Mayer, the executive director of the Old Stone House here in Park Slope. When the Vecht family built their farm here in 1699, what was the area like? So it was a swampy lowland, and their nearest neighbors were the Bergens and the Van Brunts. Uh, You'll see that Brooklyn is really comprised of about 270 Dutch families. The idea of a blended family is very old in Brooklyn. Uh, People were married, interrelated, cousins, uh, and most of the street names that we know today are from the original families that settled here in the 17th and 18th centuries. So Park Slope, 300 years ago, would have been just a number of family farms. Yes. The Vex Farm uh, was went all the way up to what's now Prospect Park, a very steep, woody hillside. Where we're sitting now in the current building, we would have been in the center of the, or at the edge of the Gowanus Swamp, uh, the estuary. I guess that would be a nicer way to put it. <laughs> but this site would be very crucial in the summer of 1776. In fact, this place saw a significant amount of fighting and bloodshed. This was the site of an extraordinary skirmish between the British and the Continental Army, who was actually escaping. The Battle of Brooklyn was the first official battle of the United States Army. It took place on August 27, 1776. It was a six-hour battle. It took place early in the morning throughout most of what's now South Brooklyn and sort of Gravesend and Bay Ridge. The British forcibly took the Vex house here and then encamped here and from this location began shooting at the Continental Army. They bravely held off the British while the rest of the army escaped. Unfortunately, 256 soldiers died that day and oddly enough, they were buried in a mass grave around the area of 3rd Avenue and 7th Street. The battle here at what we call the Old Stone House today was seen by George Washington when he was on a little hill, Cobbles Hill Fort, which we've mentioned before in a prior show. Right. When he, he was atop that perch when he saw sort of everything kind of falling apart and ordered everyone to retreat. This remains one of the few existing markers of the early years of the Revolutionary War here in Brooklyn. So the Old Stone House today represents a significant moment in the history of the Revolutionary War, but interestingly, it does not represent a victory. No, and that might explain part of the reason that it's been sort of disrespected. It was a sore reminder, and it really wasn't until the 20th century when we looked back at this period and said, well, no, all of these sites are valuable, and all of these bring important lessons with them. So what happened to this land after the war? It seems like it's just been through this traumatic event. It's it's pretty damaged. It's been pretty battle-torn. But a semblance of normalcy does return by the early 19th century. And that town to the west, that, that little village, Brooklyn, begins to expand and become quite wealthy because, of course, it's 
considered the first suburb of New York, you know, so a lot of people would take the ferry, the Fulton Ferry, back and forth. And so because of that, it would be seen as a very desirable place to live. That town grew larger and larger. And I'm referring to the part of the town to the west that's around the Fulton Ferry area, the area of Brooklyn Heights. Right, what we call Brooklyn Heights today. But interestingly, where we're going to spend our time here today, even as early as the 1850s, Tom, it's still pretty much farmland. More bustling, more farms, but essentially it's farmland still, although it was beginning to be parceled out because development was coming. Well, one thing that happened of note in the 1850s in this neighborhood was the straightening of the Gowanus Creek, which had always been there, obviously, but it was dredged up to make it more useful to the area so that businesses could develop and industry could develop in this lower land. And one of the people chiefly responsible for this in 1869 is a man named Edwin Litchfield. Now, Litchfield, do you know Litchfield, Greg? Oh, yeah, we know, I know Litchfield. We've, we've spoken about him before in our Prospect Park show. Yes, we did. Not to spoil anything. Which is another great companion show to yes. this one. Litchfield was born in 1815 in upstate New York to a very well-to-do family. His father was a politician. He was trained as a lawyer and lived in Albany for a while, then moved down in 1849 to New York City to make his fortune... Here's Julie Golia, the director of public history at the Brooklyn Historical Society. Edwin Litchfield was a lawyer, a railroad magnate, an industrial entrepreneur. And when we're thinking of him in the context of Park Slope, he was a major real estate developer. And he saw this huge opportunity in Brooklyn. He saw what Pierpont had been doing in, in the Brooklyn Heights area. In Brooklyn Heights. Because Brooklyn Heights was already filled, it was already developed, and here was all this land. And not only that, but now going down Flatbush Avenue was a horse-drawn carriage. So new transportation opportunities are emerging in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s. One of the major things was a much more efficient system of horse cars, which were basically like um, carriages that connected neighborhoods that were developing further out, places like Park Slope, places like Bedford, to the ferry, and then allowing people to commute across the river there. Suddenly, you didn't have to live in Brooklyn Heights to be one of these commuters to Manhattan. You could also live a little bit farther afield in this new bucolic land where land was cheaper and you could build something a little bit bigger and nicer to your specs. Well, he started buying up the land in the 1850s and developing it. One of the parcels of land that he bought up in 1852 was the Quartzel U Farm. That's the property that holds today's Old Stone House. Mm-hmm. So we're back to talking about the same farm. He bought that and other adjacent farmlands. So imagine, he bought about 150 acres of land, which perhaps difficult for you to imagine 150 <laughs> acres. I'm not much of an acreage type of person, so I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll just visualize it as being large. It's very large. It's about 30 blocks today between 2nd and 10th Avenue. So 2nd Avenue, I mean, the yeah. middle of the Guanas, right. mm-hmm. up to 10th Avenue and from 1st to 5th Street. So a lot of land. And he's also buying land all the way down 8th Avenue, 7th Avenue, 6th Avenue, 5th Avenue, all the way down to the Gowanus Canal. He has a vision here. He sees the high land as a place for very expensive real estate and the lower land down by the Gowanus Canal is area that he will begin to buy and develop for commercial and industrial purposes, which he does. The name is appropriate. It was a very hilly area. One of the major hills in the area was called Mount Prospect. So sometimes the area was actually called Mount Prospect. And that is actually that very high point of Mount Prospect 
is where Litchfield sort of put his money where his mouth is. He wasn't just buying up land there. He actually decided he was going to take advantage of the incredible views and live there himself. And he built the Litchfield Villa there between 1853 and 1857. This villa is between 9th and 10th Avenues and between 3rd and 5th Street. A beautiful place designed in the Italian villa style. Very playful, fun, all kinds of turrets and towers. Well, but to underscore a house. Like, it's a it gigantic his... mansion, you know. Right. Well, he had money, and he also wanted to build something that might attract other rich people to come to his land because he wanted to build this development of ritzy residences. And he even gave himself a really great street, Third Street, which he made wider so that the approach for his carriage would be <laughs> would lead his guests right to his front door. Isn't that lovely? Well, I guess you can do that if it's your property. Which, by the way, there's I'm not smelling that there's a park in existence yet for this story, right? No. Okay. So, th- so his villa is done in 1857, mm-hmm. right? It's about the same time that construction started on Central Park in Manhattan. Brooklyn saw Central Park across the river, and Brooklyn wanted its own park. And then ended up borrowing the architects from the very same project, Olmsted and Vox. And they kicked off their own plans in the early 1860s, which were stalled with the Civil War. But as soon as the Civil War was finished, they really got down to to business working on the development of the park. But the park plans were originally farther north of where today's park is. So the the park was kind of straddling both sides of Flatbush Avenue, not to, like, ruin the punchline of the Prospect <laughs> Park podcast, which, which I think we take a lot longer to tell this story. But uh-huh. finally, they had to settle on a new plan. Vox kind of fixes the earlier plans that would have had the park bisected by Flatbush Avenue. He incorporates a much bigger piece of land that was between 9th and 10th Avenue from 3rd Street all the way down to 15th. So if you imagine between 3rd and 15th and that area east of 9th Avenue, all of that was not in the original plan. It got absorbed into the new plan here, right? Right, exactly. And what was on that parcel of land that was getting absorbed into the park? A certain villa. Litchfield's villa. He wasn't necessarily tremendously excited to think that his land was being sort of snatched up by eminent domain. And we spoke about this with Julie at, at the Brooklyn Historical Society. And this is actually fa- and a fascinating sort of side story. This is all being done while Litchfield was on a Grand European tour with his family. So this is all going down when he's abroad. You know, he didn't have his BlackBerry to check his email and get the up-to-date um, on what is actually going on in terms of the development back in Brooklyn. So when he gets back, his land has essentially been seized by the city. But he's a powerful man, and he arranges to be able to lease the land on which his house is. Um, sits, which he does so for almost the rest of his life. He does so until the 1880s when his wife passes away. Then he goes back to Europe to live there for a few more years until he himself passes away in 1885. So he got to stay in Litchfield Villa as a private residence for the rest of his life. I should add that part of the original plan of the park was to base it around the actual hill called Prospect Hill. Now, this was eventually removed from the plan of the park, and it's its own little park today. But because of that, during the the late 19th century here, anyone who was living around the park at this time, they would refer to the place that they were living as the park slope, as in literally you're living on the slope of the park, right? right? Or sometimes you would say Prospect Park Hill or Prospect Park Slope, but it was never like an officially named 
park slope. It was literally like, oh, I live down on the park slope. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that you know we need to maybe bring that back. Bring and back the the. The the, I think, right. Yeah. Lower, just lowercase everything. And the kicker, of course, is that Litchfield's Villa is still with us today. It's now the headquarters of Brooklyn's Parks Department, still sitting quite nicely inside the park. It hasn't moved. One final word about Litchfield. Part of his work as a developer was to also run a company called the Brooklyn Improvement Company, which was in charge of sort of the infrastructure of the land, the sewers, the waters. In 1882, he moved his offices into the Long Island Cognier Stone Company, which was located at 3rd Avenue and 3rd Street. With the the Long Island Cognier Company? What did you say? N- no, Cognier. <laughs> Cognier. Cognier. Yes. All right. I was... Cognier. Cognier. And the, and the building itself is still there today. It's a little bit to the west of Park Slope. So, yes, this is, this is Cognier West. <laughs> And this is the building, if I, if I remember correctly, the building that is today incorporated into the brand new Whole Foods, mm-hmm. which has now been built down in Gowanus, right? So that building was Litchfield's office, and today right. he could like pick up some kale on his way on his way home, right? And save ten cents if he brings his own bag. <laughs> this takes us up to the late eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, when land is being developed and residences. Not just Litchfield's villa, but other residences are being constructed. Industry is moving in in these lower avenues down by the canal. And new haughty, beautiful residences, by which I mean mansions, are being built between Prospect Park and 6th Avenue and from about Flatbush down to 3rd Street. This was the area really developed after the Civil War period for some of the, the wealthiest families in Brooklyn, who could have bought a place in, in Brooklyn Heights, but they wanted perhaps more space to build something the way they wanted it built. This was a point underscored to us the other day when we spoke with longtime resident of Park Slope, John Casson. Brooklyn Heights was, you know, really where if you lived in Brooklyn and had lots of money, that's where you lived. And then after that, and those houses are much old, are older than these houses. And then Park Slope they decided to build larger homes. And uh, so you had a house that, you know, maybe 40 feet wide, five stories high, with rooms for servants. And these were very, very wealthy people. They had uh, places to uh, keep their horses out here. In fact, in Vanderbilt Avenue, there was a large stable with exercise uh, indoors, (laughs) you know. And it was, these were really affluent people. So this was kind of an alternative to building a smaller place in Brooklyn Heights. Well, you probably couldn't have built it because Brooklyn Heights was really packed with federal-style houses at that time. And this was open land. And uh, the ones adjacent to Prospect Park West and uh, Plaza Street, they were custom-built houses. They were the big ones. And so you could really get what you wanted. And they all were very, very different. No row house at all. And so uh, they, you know, could get a house. They could commute to downtown Brooklyn or wherever, uh, and or Manhattan if need be, and uh, live very comfortably out here. And these houses were very expensive for the time. Well, Tom, you kind of jumped over something a little important, I think, here. That would be the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge, which came in 1883. 
uh, which was a symbol. Oh, is that in Park Slope? <laughs> well, it's not in Park Slope, but it's very influential to the history because it's a, you know, it's obviously a symbol of the ascension of a great city. Um, but it also physically created this, this great opportunity for the city to grow and made it even easier for those to live in Brooklyn and to travel to Manhattan for work, for instance. So now people didn't just have to take the ferry over from Fulton Street, but they could take themselves across the Brooklyn Bridge, and they there were trolleys and trains that went across the bridge. Right, so the Brooklyn horse, car, and trolley systems were sort of developed in line with the bridge, and then shortly afterward, that linked Park Slope with downtown Brooklyn, which of course then, you know, could go el- elsewhere. So if, if you lived, Greg, in Park Slope in 1890, how would you get to your job in Lower Manhattan? Well, I mean, depending on where you're living, right? Because we're already delineating the fact that the closer you get to the park, the wealthier you you are. Mm -hmm. So let's just say I'm not wealthy. I would actually take the Fifth Avenue trolley line, um, which was a north-south trolley that went up Fifth Avenue and connected with Flatbush Avenue. If I were wealthier in this example, I would take the one on Seventh Avenue, or there was also one... I think the nicest one was that ran along Prospect Park West itself. Mm. Now, there were east-west trolleys as well. The cross streets, of course, they would be the nicest streets, 9th Street and Union Street. The trolley would come to define the lifestyle of Brooklyn. There were so many trolleys that, you know, you would have to run across the street, of, you know, to dodge them on a busy day. Would you say run across to dodge something? <laughs> to, to dodge, dodge the trolley? trolley dodgers? Yes. That would, in fact, inspire the city's most popular team, the Trolley Dodgers. Trolley Dodgers? The Trolley Dodgers. I'll get to what happens in a second. Okay. But I think okay. right now is a good time to read a little quote. This is startling to me. This is from the Brooklyn Citizen in 1893. Okay, keep that in mind. Quote, The Park Slope has had a life of barely 10 years. In 1884, the region now splendidly built up with private residences was little more than fields and pasture. Today, it is the place of the Romanesque, with a score or more houses in the French chateau style. It is a place of charming homes, of quaint designs, little invaded by flats and apartments. So not really even mm-hmm. in the apart- apartments at this time. I just want to mention just two or three of my favorite mansions. Up on 8th Avenue, there's just row after row of these gorgeous homes. For instance, at 28th Avenue was the home of the mayor, William J. Gaynor. 38th Avenue and visit Charles Feltman, who was the inventor of the hot dog and a mogul from Coney Island. And another one, Tom, as we were walking around yesterday, another one that I showed you was a house with a very sweet story. So we've been wandering around Park Slope all afternoon, having a lovely time, and we are now stopped at 115 8th Avenue, very close to the park. Very lovely mansion. Now, do you know Cadbury eggs? I do. Well, this has nothing to do with I love them. <laughs> this doesn't have anything to do with Cadbury eggs, but it does have to do with candy, and it does have to do with a man named Cadbury. His name was Cadbury Adams. He built this mansion, and sometimes nicknamed the Chicklets Mansion, because he was the founder of the company that gave us Chicklets chewing gum. Oh, which were... <laughs> Which are still delicious today, but must have been really huge back in the day. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I just called up a little advertisement from 1905. It's a very old candy, but this is the house that Chicklets built. (laughs) And we're standing here outside his mansion at the corner of 8th Avenue and Carroll Street. 
And it's currently sort of under massive renovation, actually, but it has this broad sweeping staircase that goes up to a platform to the front door with this beautiful oaken doors and um, a lovely bay window that seems to be carved out of stone. So just to give you an example of just a few, a number of these barons and and wealthy people right. who lived up and down the streets here. Bubblegum and hot dog <laughs> barons on yes. the same street. Neighbors. Now, if you were one of these wealthy men, you probably were a member of the Montauk Club, which is sort of the big gentleman's club that was built here in Park Slope in 1889. And it's, it's on 25th Avenue. So I imagine all of these men that I had mentioned earlier with their wives, because they could inv- they could bring women into the club as well, were entertained here for a, a lovely evening. So the Montauk Club and these other mansions that you mentioned were all constructed in the 1880s. Right. All in the same, like within 10 years of each other. And the thing to remember, because this was all farmland beforehand, that these were the first and as of yet only buildings to be constructed on this area of land, as John explained yesterday when he was talking about the history of his own house here in Park Slope. My house was built in 1883 on Berkeley Place. And it was built by a developer who put up eight houses, which are almost identical in a row, on spec. Now, there was nothing there. Roads had been laid out, so sometime a few years before that, they laid out the grid system for Park Slope, because originally this was all farmland. And in fact, they had to level the land. It was seen near the park, after the park was announced, which was several decades prior to that, that this would be a desirable place to live, and that people could commute from Manhattan to there. And so the houses closer to the park are much more elaborate. Some of them, in fact, were mansions, full, you know, very, very wide. Most of those have been torn down. You still see a handful of them. But that's what's going on up here on 8th Avenue, okay? But let's, let's go down the avenues, because down on 5th Avenue... While they're up smoking cigars up at the Montauk Club, well, you and me are probably down on Fifth Avenue in the area of the old stone house because that, in the preceding decades, has been turned into a baseball park called Washington Park from 1883 to 1891. And a professional baseball team has played here with a series of names uh, like the Atlantics and the Bridegrooms. And it would be the Bridegrooms who would then have their name changed to the Trolley Dodgers. Okay, I'm uh, hold on, hold yeah, on, yeah, hold yeah. on. So the old stone house is still standing there? What, what, what happened? Because the, the old stone house is the site of this Revolutionary War, the streets are all marked off, and it kind of crumbles. How does it right. become a baseball field? <laughs> well, it becomes a, a, a very sad building in very sorry shape. And during the 1860s, part of the canal, I believe, had been filled in to, to become like an ice skating rink. And then during the summers, they drained it and they played baseball here. And the house was used, sort of used as a clubhouse. It kind of really deteriorated. So as they were developing houses of up close towards the park, you know, they had to dig foundations and everything. They just sort of, I guess it was an open space. They basically just took some of that landfill and dumped it here and actually just dumped it in the house. And so it just basically got consumed in piles of dirt and landfill. So the old stone house was sort of swallowed up by the, <laughs> by the landfill 
from right. other construction in Park Slope. Y- yes. And I don't want to get too far into sports history here, but then oh, a little bit later do. Well, but a little bit later they move the that ballpark kind of across the street onto the other side of Fourth Avenue. And it's from that new park that the trolley Dodgers then just become the Dodgers. And then of course move on to much greater glory down at Ebbets Field. Flash forward to the eighteen nineties and eighteen ninety eight, specifically of course with the consolidation of New York City with the four newly created boroughs, including the borough of Brooklyn. We're now dealing with now no longer an independent city. Now, of course, obviously not every Brooklynite is happy about that, but we can't deny that it has assisted in the further development of Brooklyn and typified by around that same time came the very first apartment complexes into Park Slope, which was kind of a novel idea still by 1900, but they begin arriving here, and so the... As the city is getting its first apartment buildings, too. It yeah, isn't like a, yeah. Brooklyn was necessarily <laughs> late in getting there. No, them. no, the concept had only been 20 years old or so. And was brought about by many different forces and changes in American society, one of them being that suddenly affluent people didn't necessarily want to put in all the work, the effort, and the money in keeping up one of these big old mansions. So what would happen to those mansions? What would happen to these streets that had been lined with brand new, pristine, beautiful architecture? What would happen to Park Slope? We're going to unravel that mystery after the commercial break. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. 
Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. And now, back to the show. So you left us before the break dangling the the narrative of the apartment building before our eyes here. Right. So we had, had been in the Gold Coast, right? Mm-hmm. All of these fancy the mansions. mansions. And now apartment buildings were now being introduced, but they were still very nice apartment buildings. And so these would pop up in the first decade of the 1900s along Garfield Place, 8th Avenue, Prospect Park West, around Grand Army Plaza. And many of these are still there today. And their residents, of course, arrived at the newly built subway system, which was was now reaching into Brooklyn around this area at this time. Yes, because the 4th Avenue BMT line would open in 1915. 100 years ago. Less uplifting is the depressing story of the 1930s. (laughs) The Depression would hit, unsurprisingly, uh, the neighborhood of Park Slope quite hard, as it did throughout the city. But it also saw, at the same time, the redevelopment of the old stone house and the redevelopment of Washington Park that you had been talking about before. As you'll recall in her story, at this point, the old stone house is being sort of filled in with landfill, yes, used as like a baseball dugout, mm-hmm. and is in general disarray, sinking deeper and deeper into the landfill. Well, it took, of course, Parks Commissioner Robert Moses to come in and to redevelop this land as a model children's playground. And Kim Mayer from the Old Stone House spoke to us about this. So when this reopened then in 1934, what was the neighborhood like around it? So it was very much a working class neighborhood and heavily immigrant, Italian and Irish. I think uh, sort of reflecting the rise of industrialization in Brooklyn. The Gold Coast up on Prospect Park West still existed. Uh, you know, the development of the beautiful brownstone neighborhood that we know today. But the Amer- the area immediately surrounding the park, uh, the American Can Factory building is still there. So that gives you some idea of the kinds of buildings and the kinds of industrial development that was going on along the canal. And uh, the playground was really put in place in the 1930s. Uh, to my knowledge, it was one of the 10 model playgrounds that Moses was developing around the city. The 1940s would bring with it some new shifts and then some new challenges. With the Depression in the 1930s, some families at the top of the social ladder were leaving the Gold Coast and leaving their old mansions because they no longer wanted to take care of them. Their parents or their grandparents had built these structures, and now they were these big expensive relics of another era and maybe the families didn't have as much money yeah. now to well, keep they, them up. Yeah, they were too large. You didn't have, like, a coterie of servants to to pay to clean the whole place and to live there uh, comfortably. So it just made sense to move out of New York City or to move maybe to a tonier apartment on the Upper East Side. So that meant that many of these mansions were now vacant or up for sale. 
And at the same time, we have World War II and we have the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which is employing more people than it ever had. And the question arose, where to house these people? So so new landlords moved into Park Slope, buying up some of these old properties, these old mansions, these old brownstones, and converting them into rooming houses in the 1940s, renting out rooms to employees of the Brooklyn Navy Yard, sometimes putting more than one person in a room. So these single-family homes would then just be cut up and parceled out and basically turned into boarding houses. When we spoke to John, who moved to Park Slope in 1967 with his wife, he talked about how this trend continued for decades. Uh, Then World War II came along, and all of a sudden the Brooklyn Navy Yard was operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week, They needed to house people. A lot of these houses were converted to rooming houses. And you could commute by trolley car down to the Navy Yard. As a result, you had rooming houses on the side streets, lots of houses, although there were people still, families still living here. And you had bars along 7th Avenue. Every block in 7th Avenue when we moved here had a bar. Those were for for the Navy employees? Yeah, because there were so many people. You know, if you converted a brownstone into two, say, rooms per floor, it's eight people or maybe sharing rooms. It was a lot of people living here. So the houses have changed, of course, quite drastically here after the war and by Mm -hmm. by the 1950s. But how's the neighborhood? Because clearly that must be very different as well. Well, so there are lots of shifts going on, right? And they're not just shifts in Park Slope, but in New York and in other big cities around the country. This is something that Julie Golia, the public historian at the Brooklyn Historical Society, went into some detail with me about. What happens in Park Slope after World War II follows very similar patterns to a number of neighborhoods in the greater city of New York. You see growing numbers of businesses moving out of the city for a number of reasons. The strength of unions in New York and the desire to move to places where there's less union presence. Um, You see a shift away from waterfront transportation towards um, automobile and trucking transportation, making the waterfront infrastructure sort of obsolete. And this has an enormous effect on that working class population. And you see the development of an interstate highway system that now makes it a lot easier to connect out to suburbs like New Jersey, Westchester, Long Island. And it's all of these major structural factors that contribute to the development of of what people call white flight, Um, the movement of primarily white working class people out of New York City um, to suburbs like Long Island. Even our friend Robert Moses participated in a little bit of this push out of New York City with the the construction of all these gigantic highways that took people in and out of New York, mostly out of New York. And I think that he probably would have defended his actions by saying that he was making New York into a city of the future because we've talked about how Moses and Le Corbusier, city planners and city architects, thought that the only way for cities to survive at a time like this was to embrace the automobile and make the cities modern, transform how the cities were laid out, transform also residences. Suddenly, like, what was more passe and ridiculous than some four-story brownstone or mansion uh, along the old Gold Coast of Park Slope? It was totally outdated. These were absurdly out of fashion by the 1950s. 
So you have middle-class New Yorkers leaving Park Slope and other neighborhoods like it, and coming in, you have new immigrant populations at the same time. So there's a new Puerto Rican population that's coming into the city after the war, looking for jobs that they've expected to find here, and finding really, you know, a lot of racial tension, bias, and unemployment instead. And they're living in neighborhoods at the bottom of the rung, like Park Slope, down around Fifth Avenue. Meanwhile, other groups are starting to move up the hill, taking the place of the Germans and the English that had taken off in the first place. So you've got a a neighborhood that's largely Italian, Irish, Puerto Rican, and African-American. And obviously, this kind of transition and population flux would not be easy and would play out in confrontations on these very avenues. You know, it was a working class neighborhood. There were, you know, people's livelihood was here. I mean, it was a it was an operating neighborhood, but it is true in comparison to how it is today and how it was 100 years ago. The crime rate was rather high and there was a bit of urban decay already creeping in at this time. And then on top of that, on Friday, December 16th, 1960, tragedy would strike as two planes, a United flight and a TWA flight, would collide over New York City and both of them would make crash landings. The United plane attempted to make a crash landing in Prospect Park, but it came down short, landing instead at Sterling Place on 7th Avenue, right in the heart of Park Slope. 128 people on both of these planes would die, along with six people on the ground. There was only one survivor, an 11-year-old named Stephen Lambert Baltz from Illinois, who was flying to meet his mother and sister, who were visiting New York City. He was thrown from the plane into a snowbank. Rescuers rolled him in the snow to cool him off, and he was raced down 7th Avenue to Methodist Hospital, where he gave some interviews from his hospital bed and tragically died the next day of pneumonia. There is a plaque today that honors him uh, in the hospital's chapel and serves as a memorial. It contains the dimes and the nickels that had been found in his pocket. A very moving memorial. Even walking down Sterling Place, where the plane actually crashed today, is uh, somewhat disturbing because there's almost no evidence of the fact that, I mean, a plane crash digging a trench into the street. I mean, there were there were there was fire. Uh, several buildings were damaged. So pushing through the 1960s and we get to the 70s, <laughs> which in New York can be kind of difficult. Well, yeah, this, this is usually the time of the show mm-hmm. where one or both of us go into our, oh, it's bankruptcy, it's urban decay, it's the slide of New York City, and to complete and utter despair. And, of course, for most of New York City, that would be the case. But I'm about to turn that story on its head thanks to a very small group of people that we call the Brownstoners. Suburbs were, of course, emptying the city and emptying these brownstones. But there were some in New York City that didn't want to move to the suburbs that were proponents of Jane Jacobs and the whole back-to-the-city movement and taking back the streets and turning things into thriving neighborhoods. There was also a new sense of historical awareness by the 1960s that was increased, of course, in the wake of the demolition of of huge historical landmarks like Pennsylvania Station. The idea of pre-existing urban architecture being preferable to new forms of lifeless 
postmodern, this Corbusier stuff, this mm-hmm. modern architecture. That you wanted to live in something that was once lively history itself. You didn't just want to look down on the streets from your glass tower. So this movement, the Brownstone Brooklyn movement, started a little bit after World War II in various neighborhoods of Brooklyn, involving mostly Manhattanites, mostly white professionals of certainly higher than average means, I think it's obvious, that would sweep into neighborhoods that had particularly high densities of 19th century architecture. And in many cases, these properties were actually just flat out abandoned or had been radically changed into these boarding houses. As they came in, they began renovating in larger numbers and began changing the areas in which they lived. They began neighborhood associations, working in many cases, at least, with the pre-existing communities to improve the safety of the streets. Some of these people had restored homes in Brooklyn Heights, uh, but then I take it they're coming to Park Slope. Right. So it's funny. It's around this time, the 1960s, that we get all of our cute little Brooklyn names, essentially. So as they take over blocks of brownstones, they would create new neighborhood names. Real estate investors and, and the people who lived there would sort of agree upon a brand new name that would have a kind of a historical meaning to it. So, for instance, you'd have Borum Hill, Cobble Hill, Carroll Gardens. These are names that have historical relevance to the neighborhood, but weren't exactly names that they used 100 years ago. So this same process ended up coming to Park Slope. And people are coming because they are part of this movement, like you said, but I'm sure that there's also just practical reasons, right? The real estate was cheaper. They wanted more space. Well, for instance, the very first brownstoner into the Park Slope area, um, they, they are sort of considered the first, named Evelyn and Everett Ortner, bought a house at 272 Berkeley Place for $32,000, the entire building. And that was in 1963. And not just any building. We stopped by a couple days ago, and it's a beautiful mm-hmm. mansion. And today, of course, it goes for millions of dollars. So these brownstoners who began coming in to renovate these houses had some kind of unlikely allies, like, for instance, public utilities like the Brooklyn Union Gas Company. They purchased an old brownstone and refurbished it with modern gas appliances and gas lighting and hosted fairs and open houses to bring these people of means into these areas and, you know, demonstrated the idea of revisiting history in a livable environment. Now, you put a lot of emphasis on people of means, but when we talked with John Kaysen, who's been living in Park Slope since 1967, he painted a slightly more nuanced picture of just it being a practical economical choice for him because he and his wife were looking for for more space than they could afford in Chelsea, but they didn't want to live in the suburbs. My wife and I lived in, both worked for the Port Authority. We lived in Manhattan. Chelsea, and we wanted to buy a house, but we did not want to move to the suburbs. And so we looked around Chelsea and west side of Manhattan, but it was just beyond our range. So my wife approached the guy who was the urban renewal planner for the Port Authority, and he said, oh, go to Park Slope. They have brownstones. And I was somewhat dubious. But, well, I'd been to Park Slope once, and it didn't look too attractive. And at the time, the New York Times, that Sunday, right after my wife spoke to him, 
uh, ran an article about Park Slope and said that they were having a house tour. This was roughly, uh, I'd say, 66 or 65. And what they were doing was recognizing that they were living in a neighborhood that at the time was in serious risk of becoming a slum. People now have no idea how bad it was here. It was scary. People were fleeing Park Slope. In fact, people were abandoning buildings even. As a result, you know, it was a bargain to buy a house here. You could buy a brownstone for between fifteen and $18,000 when I was looking. Well, some of the, the larger houses, the near mansions, were up into the twenty to $30,000 range. During this early period, they sometimes would call themselves pioneers because there was an uncertainty with, uh, you know, throwing an investment behind a house like this. Sometimes it was very difficult to get loans. They just wanted a big house. They wanted to have space, you know, which you couldn't have in Manhattan. And this did seem so attractive, but it was a true fix-me-up. In many cases, maybe money pits and occasionally. Not to mention it was very difficult for many of these people to get mortgages in the first place because the area had been redlined. So by the early 1970s, there were enough people here and there was enough interest in in the history of this area. Finally, there were enough homes that were properly refurbished that you could see the, the beauty of what this neighborhood would have been like in the 19th century. And so in 1973, they succeeded in getting the Park Slope Historic District officially created here, mostly along the edge of the park. So mostly along 8th Avenue and Prospect Park West here. So that would be the Gold Coast section? The goldest of the Gold Coast here, absolutely. Um, I also think it's funny because it's the same year was also formed the Park Slope Food Co-op, which is probably the most successful food co-op in the United States, certainly. This idea of people in the community collectively deciding which kind of foods would be sold in the store and then volunteering into the store as a way of operating it. Leading to all manner of sarcastic (laughs) and snarky takedowns of the operation itself and a lot of imitation. Now, we're only, of course, talking about a relatively small number of houses, though. So that was 8th Avenue, 7th Avenue, but farther west on Park Slope, so more around 5th Avenue. Toward Gowanus. Yes. A little bit more of a troubling scenario because you still had these working class communities that were still there. The Brownstoners hadn't yet arrived to this neighborhood yet. And you had more violent clashes between certain groups of people because this is actually what was going on throughout the city as a whole, generally. Right. This is not contained to Park Slope at this point. More people of these avenues had pulled out, and it was less safe for the residents who lived there. There were these open-air drug markets. The crime rate was pretty terrible by this time, endangering everyone. Gang activity was active all over Brooklyn in the early 70s. To demonstrate this unusual dichotomy of things that were happening, in July of 1973, on Union Street, on Fifth Avenue and Union Street, which was at the time kind of a a dividing line between the Italian section and the Puerto Rican section. It was a terrible altercation, a riot between the youths on, between the youths, (laughs) between a group of young people. People end up throwing firebombs, lighted fireworks. 
people start pulling up the guns. There were five people who were shot and five injured officers. So just a few blocks from the quote-unquote enlightened redevelopments that were happening right up the street. So a lot of these neighborhood retailers fled along Fifth Avenue. And so as a result, you had so many shuttered, boarded up stores. Along Fifth Avenue. Along Fifth Avenue. I mean, it was just so striking compared to what was happening up the hill, up the slope. And so these and these forces continue to rub together into the 1980s. We spoke with another longtime resident, Michael Carroll, who moved in 1993, and he was describing how even in the 90s, Fifth Avenue was so dicey. Um, so when did you move back to Park Slope? 1993. It was still definitely a neighborhood in transition, but a lot of the transition had already occurred, Seventh Avenue and up. Um, Fifth Avenue and down was very much a work in progress. And Fifth Avenue then was still a little bit dicey. Parts of it were open-air drugs marts. But that was changing, too, uh, just as the rest of the neighborhood got more expensive. But all of Park Slope remained a draw. Uh, people were looking to, uh, to live wherever they could. And so this relentless, you can call it gentrification if you want, but uh, relentless desirability of the neighborhood moved downhill, and it continues to do so. Now, just turning our attention to the subject for a moment of real estate, Greg, (laughs) I was at the public library a couple days ago in the Milstein Division, room 121, one of my favorite rooms. Back in there. Back in Milstein. And I was flipping through the Park Slope file, which they, they keep a clippings folder of newspaper clippings about Park Slope, they had all of the New York Times, if you're thinking about living in, features. Oh, yeah. I know know that column. It was fascinating to read this column about Park Slope printed as it was in many different editions of the Times throughout the 1980s and 1990s. They were always kind of telling the same story. For example... In 1982, if you're thinking of living in Park Slope, from Sunday, April 4th, 1982, by David Byrd. The talk in Brooklyn's Park Slope section these days is of change, of new people coming in and driving up the price of brownstone houses well past the $200,000 mark. (laughs) So well over $200,000. So people had been buying these in the late 60s and early 70s for $25,000 to Mm $35,000. Now... By 82, they're up to $200,000 for an entire house, mind you. Quote, many newcomers come from Manhattan to escape rents that have soared beyond their means. Others come to find more space for their children and perhaps even a place to park their car. Today, newcomers are arriving at all levels of the slope, while the area south of 9th Street, once considered the working class neighborhood, is now where people dismayed by high Manhattan rents are settling. Rental apartments are especially hard to find now because demand is so high, and houses in prime areas of the slope that sold for less than $100,000 in the mid-70s are now going for more than $200,000. The punchline of that meaning that today they go for 10 times that amount, or more. But wait, just six years later, the same (laughs) column, if you're thinking of living in Park Slope in 1987... They tell the anecdote of Jan Hodenfield, who remembers, quote, six years ago when a townhouse in Park Slope could be bought for less than $200,000 and 7th Avenue was mostly bodegas, cobblers, and neighborhood bars. Today, brownstones cost $750,000 and a Benetton clothing store opened on the (laughs) avenue in October. Remember Benetton? Benetton. Today, it's a Brooklyn Industries, of course. So by this point, in the end of the 80s, the price of real estate was increasing about 
20% a year, and it would just keep going up, I will spare you the other I will spare you the other recitations <laughs> yes. of f- further columns but it just is the same thing over and over this is a classic example of course of the concept of gentrification which Tom do you know that that phrase gentrification was actually coined in the 1960s so a parallel to what we've been talking about even so even with a radio shack and a Barnes and Noble the neighborhood is still celebrated for its diversity for instance, in the 1990s, it became known as a home for a lesbian population, for instance. Of course, it's very known, almost cliched, known for its baby strollers, because it would be, of course, a popular destination for young families. And it is definitely no longer known as a place where you can snatch up an old brownstone for $25,000. No. In fact, this thing that's happening in Park Slope has, of course, spilled over now into all the adjoining neighborhoods, which have some of them have taken on new names, Prospect Heights, for instance. And the same thing today is actually happening right now to its neighbor down in Gowanus. But I think it's safe to say the Park Slope remains as popular today as it has ever been. Taking us back to the old stone house, I was taken just by how bustling the area was by people of all ages. There were a lot of kids, just a ton of kids playing. There was someone there was a team playing a little soccer over to the side. There was a farmer's market, plenty of happy shoppers. And of course, there were people standing all around at thriving restaurants right around the park, standing in line for brunch. On Fifth Avenue. No one would be standing for brunch on the Fifth Avenue of 1970, it's true. And so that is our tale of Park Slope and the complicated story of Brownstone, Brooklyn. Join us on the blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for photos and illustrations of the people and the buildings and the events that have shaped this neighborhood's history. You can join us on Facebook and also on Twitter, where during New York history-themed television shows, I will tweet during the shows little factual information. And I say that because we are in the last two episodes of Mad Men. So, of course, you can join me on Sunday night for those two. If you're listening to the show, show live, that is. We'd like to thank Kim Mayer from the Old Stone House, Julia Golia from the Brooklyn Historical Society, and Park Slope residents John Casson and Michael Carroll for contributing to our show today. And we hope that you like what we've done with these little interviews and sound bites. so please give us your feedback. Uh, send us an email or just reach out to us on Facebook. And if you want to help us do even more, please join us on patreon.com slash boweryboys. And for those of you who have already become a member, we have a lot of things that weren't able to make it into the show. We will be putting together a special outtakes reel with additional interviews and discussions about the history of Park Slope. Those will be available to our patrons on Friday. So thank you very much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.